Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our most recent annual conference, Why is Housing So Unaffordable? Causes and Solutions. For the next 12 weeks, our discussions will revolve around the topic of housing and house prices with three subtopics. The first will be root causes, followed by an evaluation of current policy responses, and finishes with alternatives to current policy and thinking around affordability. Our first discussion was held with Dr. Ryan Collins, an economist for the University of London. Dr. Ryan Collins received his bachelor's and master's from the University of Warwick in sociology and industrial relations, respectively, and his PhD in applied economics from the University of Southampton. His research focuses on macroeconomic stability, housing and land, and sustainable development. He was a senior economist for the New Economics Foundation and a council member of the Progressive Economy Forum, both of which advocate for macroeconomic policy that promotes sustainable development and reduces inequality. He is also the author of numerous books and journals, including Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing, Why Can't You Afford a Home, and Where Does the Money Come From?, all of which offer a progressive analysis of recent global macroeconomic trends. Currently, Professor Ryan Collins is a professor of economics and finance at the University College of London. Together, we discuss some of the trends going on within housing, what caused the decline in home ownership in developed nations, and why some of the classical theories around land ownership may need rethinking. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Thank you very much, Ibrahim, and uh, thanks to everyone for joining uh, the session. Okay, so I'm going to talk about demand-side drivers of the housing crisis. Uh, my focus will be on high-income economies uh, such as the US, but I have to say I have much more experience of, of the European situation and the UK especially than than the US. So um, my apologies from the beginning that uh, it's, uh, the US, the varied US housing market is, is not my my area of expertise. Nevertheless, I think some of the much of the argument uh, uh, will will apply to the US. Um, as as was mentioned, I'm at I'm a professor in economics and finance at the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose in uh, based in London. Um, two of my books were already mentioned. Uh, I'm also going to be drawing on some academic papers uh, that you can see there, uh, a paper called Breaking the Housing Finance Cycle and another one more focused on the Australian housing market. Um, and uh, yeah, you can uh, you can see the details of those papers. They are both the papers are available to download online. I'm actually just going to take off my jumper because I'm quite hot. Excuse me a second. Uh, very uh, cold outside here in in the UK. About sixteen degrees at the moment. A bit hotter in New York, I expect. Um, so, key 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 kind of thing we're dealing with today is why you know why are house prices so high relative to people's incomes? Uh, this is a simple chart showing the house price to income ratio um, in uh, it's the average of sixteen advanced uh, high income economies. Uh, including the US. And you can see that I've just plotted the long run average, which is the black line. Um, so the 
actual house price to income ratio is indexed against that long run average. Um, and what you can see there is is kind of up to the 1990s, uh, there's some evidence of a sort of uh, equilibrium around the long run average, a bit of up, a bit of up and down movement, a bit of volatility there. But something's happened in the 1990s. We have this huge rise in house prices um, with the leading up to the global financial crisis. We know that was much to do with a sort of credit fueled boom in house prices. But what's interesting about this chart is that the house prices do not, relative to incomes, do not fall back to that sort of long run average post the GFC. Uh, rather, they come down a little bit, but then uh, make their way upwards again from the sort of uh, mid 2010s onwards. Um, and since COVID, we've we've sort of seen uh, what well, we saw in COVID house prices going up even more. The uh, outcome for this of this for, um, for home ownership, which of course is a key feature of um, uh, Anglo-Saxon democracies like the US and the UK, the so-called homeowning democracies, where the underlying philosophy is that if you work hard and play hard, um, sorry, work hard, <laughs> work hard, you know, raise a family, you, you, you'll get a home of your own, you'll have a stake in society, you'll see the value of your home appreciate, you'll be able to look after yourself when you're older and pass on your home to your kids and they'll have a secure future. Well, that's all breaking down because we've seen this decline in home ownership. Uh, and in, interestingly, we've seen this decline more in the home owning democracies of uh, of these six Anglo-Saxon economies than we have in in European economies. Um, you can see there on average um, uh, how home ownership was at its peak on average in these in these countries in the uh, early early 1990s probably uh, and in all countries um, Canada being an exception and, and in all countries it's been uh, either flatlining or falling really since then and you can see in the US there the orange uh, line um, it actually peaked a bit later in the early 2000s but been falling since about 2003-2004 the uh, the ratio of home ownership has fallen from about 68% at its peak in 2004, three that looks like to around below 65% today. And I think uh, uh, those figures are even worse. This probably only goes up to 2016 or 17, I think. So those figures have, have got even worse now in the US. Um, so, you know, fundamental political problem uh, for these societies. Now, if your belief is that the cause of this problem is a lack of supply, i.e. there's just not enough homes being built for uh, the demand from the population, then uh, I, I, you think there's, there's just not enough supply of housing space as a consumption good as a, as a, in terms of the use value of the home, there's, there's just not enough homes to supply to enable people to live where they want and to work where they want. You might have expected that um, rents would also have been shooting up very fast relative to incomes. But actually, if, if you compare the house price to income ratio and the house price to rent ratio, as I've done with this data, also from the OECD, 
you can see here, again, this is averaged across about 16 advanced economies, that the house price to rent ratio has gone up even more than the house price to income ratio. In other words, house prices have been increasing at a much faster rate than rents, and even faster rate than rents than incomes. Um, and actually incomes, uh, rents have been broadly tracking incomes uh, in most countries, more or less. Some exceptions in the big cities where rents have been in increasing considerably faster than incomes, um, it, in particular in, in the last sort of three or four years with the COVID pandemic, actually. But some some sort of funny things going on with the pandemic, such as more people working, um, more people choosing to work at home and wanting more space. Um, and uh, a lot of people, um, but well, my argument is that is that really it's 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 not about uh, simply the supply of, of housing as uh, as a consumption good, but, but as an investment asset, and that's what's that's what happened during COVID, and I'll, and I'll come on to that. But the broader argument really is that house prices are driven by the demand for location. And uh, this is the this is the fact factor that's that's not properly understood by economists, and um, this is reflected in the fact that when you break down the house price increase, it's land values that uh, are, are mainly responsible for increases in house prices rather than the cost of the uh, physical building. Um, so the uh, this chart here shows land, house, and consumer price prices. It's an index in the US since 19, yeah, between 1975 and 2016. This is data from the Lincoln Institute. Um, and you can see here the land price index in the yellow line uh, is firstly much more volatile than the house price index or the consumer price index, uh, which is used to measure inflation, um, but also the rise in house prices leading up to the financial crisis is much, much greater than uh, that of house prices or, or and, and relative to consumer prices uh, these dynamics are much more much more volatile um, and uh, there's, a, there's a really nice paper by some uh, German economists uh, uh, from 2017 which shows around 80 percent of house price increases between 1950 and 2012 can be explained by rises in land values um, so the, the the key argument is that land is fixed in its supply, as, as those of you who follow Henry George will know, um, and um, so so that means that housing supply is inherently inelastic, and of course the demand for housing, uh, given the inelasticity of of housing and land, uh, actually grows over time as the rentier returns that are available. Uh, increase. Um, and this is, uh, uh, of course, what uh, Henry George wrote about. Um, and Adam Smith wrote about the classicals uh, all kind of agreed that uh, this problem of land rent, the problem of the landlord capturing the increase in value of property derived from growth in the area where the land was situated rather than their own efforts was a key problem for capitalism. Um, so there's your quote from from Adam Smith. But what's kind of interesting is that um, certainly in Europe, uh, there has been a sort of rediscovery of this of this key argument in recent times. And I hope my own work has, has played some role in this 
process. Um, but uh, this is just a quote from the European Commission last uh, paper they published, very interesting report they published last year on housing affordability. Uh, and you can see this quote here, the appropriation of economic rent by homeowners leads to suboptimal economic outcomes and raises affordability concerns. Measures to reduce the ability of homeowners to extract this rent could be part of a durable solution to house price inflation and housing affordability. And they also quoted uh, uh, my 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 book, uh, my 2017 book in that in that report, and invited me to come and give a a talk to them on property uh, tax reforms uh, uh, at the end of last year. So quite encouraging developments there uh, in Europe uh, in terms of understanding the this relationship between rent extraction and and housing affordability and of course rising land values and house price values are very bad news from an inequality perspective it just means existing owners uh, getting richer uh, and able to borrow even more and everyone else uh, essentially getting poorer and that is uh, that is the problem that we face uh, in the US and the UK and much of Europe today um the the sort of orthodox position neoclassical economics position of course essentially neglects this rent problem um this is a sort of subjective preferences theory of, of value prices determined in the free market um private property rights are necessary for free market efficient free market exchange but a are sort of presented as as natural just emerging uh naturally uh, as societies develop um and whilst land may have some short-run fixed costs in the long run it's really no different from capital or labor and these three land capital and labor can sort of can sort of be uh subsumed together into this vague concept of of a fund of capital this is the work of john bates clark um uh, and of course this marginalizes the role of ownership of the land and, and the rent that can be extracted from that ownership in this theory of of marginal productivity where income can simply be reduced to one's reward for contribution to production and wealth uh is the, are the savings due to one's productive investment effort um of course this theory uh is flawed uh, it doesn't help us understand what's been happening in uh, land markets and housing markets. And the reason for that is that land and capital are completely different types of economic phenomenon. Uh, land is finite in suppliers have explained capital money is not. It's really only constrained by labor and energy. Land is fixed and immobile. Capital is highly mobile. Land appreciates in value with growth. Capital depreciates technological innovation and and wear and tear um, and as I said ownership of land enables rent extraction uh, when when it comes to uh, man-made capital rentier profits are somewhat constrained by competition depreciation and innovation of course they're only constrained to the degree that there is regulation of them and uh, this is where obviously uh, regulators and, and competition authorities have a very important role uh, to play um, but um, the key point, I suppose, is the fact that these two properties have sort of opposite uh, qualities. They actually attract, they're attracted to each other. Credit and money uh, seek out collateral uh, that is um, 
that's going to rise in value over time that is not that can't be hidden away that's not going to depreciate and so banks like lending against land they like lending against real estate um and so if you have a deregulated financial system that is essentially what banks will do they'll regulate against uh, they'll lend against real estate rather than than other um more productive forms of of investment whether that's lending to a small firm or a large firm or, or for for working capital or for invest actual capital investment so my key thesis i suppose in my in the books that were mentioned is that the key driver of of rising land and house prices has been this explosion in mortgage credit that we saw from the 19 late 1980s onwards particularly in the us and the uk and you can see in this chart which shows credit outstanding uh, as a percentage of gdp on the left hand axis the uh, orange line is business credit non-mortgage credit mainly business and the blue is mortgage credit you can see that in the late 1990s uh, this you have this normal or in the mid 1990s in the us and the uk especially this enormous explosion in mortgage credit relative to other forms of of lending and that parallels with the rise in house prices which is the dotted black line which is shown on the right hand axis <clears throat> so for me this is the key explan explanation actually for rising house prices it's the deregulation of the mortgage markets of the banking sector coupled with this embrace of home ownership by um by high income economies uh, as a sort of political um uh, obligation that everyone should be provided with a home of their own and these big subsidies we've given to homeowners relative to other uh, other tenure other forms of 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 tenure um so just just to reiterate this is um uh, 60 i think this is 14 high income the average of 14 high income economies this this data here showing house prices and credit uh, credit flows um and that's the period of of mortgage market deregulation and innovation the key financial innovation of course in this period was the creation of uh mortgage backed securities or the uh, in the us case you've had mortgage backed securities obviously for for many many years before the 1990s but you had an explosion in um mortgage backed securities uh, during that period and in europe it, that's when this this uh this this type of financial product really took off with the creation of the eurozone you suddenly had a much bigger market for mortgage backed securities um uh, across the the eurozone uh, and of course that that they these these securities played a key role in the global financial crisis of 2008 because they got sort of increasingly complicated and you had derivatives against them and they got spread around the financial system so nobody really knew whether the risk was when the subprime crisis hit the us <clears throat> um skip that one um so i've, I've kind of explained this slide already but really but but what to sum up the, the the thesis is that when you have a liberalized financial system you get this positive feedback cycle between credit and land values um, and you can kind of keep going because if you have a, a usually with a liberalized financial system you can withdraw um, against the increasing value of your home via home equity withdrawal and you can spend that and putting in a new kitchen or you know 
paying for holidays or, or, or for, for other consumption goods. And so you can sort of keep the economy ticking over. Can you can have a sort of debt led, consumer led growth model. But this is not a very productive model because the, the banking system is not really supporting um, firm investment, like private private investment. It's it's more supporting uh, home uh, the purchase of existing homes, increasing competition for the purchase of existing homes, and um, and home equity withdrawal supporting consumption ra rather than productive investment. Um, the second block of this sort of financialization, straight rentierization of the housing market is the dominance of private landed home ownership as a form of tenure that of course enables uh, anyone who owns a owns land or owns a home to capture these land rents as prices rise up key part aspects of this is the privatization of public housing that you've you've seen very much in much of europe um and maybe the us to some extent as well but uh, i'm not as i said i'm not the expert on that liberalization of of development policy and the third plank of this is this property-oriented macroeconomic regime, which we've basically had in place, I would argue, since the since the mid 1990s, arguably, with uh, very low interest rates or, or negative. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've had negative real interest rates since the global financial crisis in most cases, um, and this uh, uh, and this means that um, this makes it cheaper to borrow. Uh, against property than uh, than otherwise would be the case. And you couple this with a uh, very generous fiscal property regime with low taxes on on property and uh, uh, and you get a uh, you know you get this huge incentive to put money into property for both the banking system but also for the wider investment community. And what you also get is a political alignment between the interests of middle and upper middle class households, the financial sector and the real estate sector with uh, with politicians. <clears throat> and Australia, I sort of see as a kind of ideal type example of this. This is the sort of, uh, in some ways, the most financialized uh, or rentierized of all of the Anglo-Saxon economies. Um, at least in the US, you've got a bit more diversity in terms of things like property tax, you have certain states that really do have quite high property taxes. For example, um, the famous example of uh, Philadelphia, uh, Pittsburgh, the, the split rate tax, for example. But but generally, you have actually higher tax rates than much of of Europe, and you have a sort of more diverse banking system across the continent. Australia just basically has five banks; they're all doing mortgage lending, and it's got incredibly generous. Uh, regime fiscal policy regime uh, tax regime for for homeowners anyway um i've tried to sort of summarize this argument in this uh, rather complicated chart um what i'm trying to capture here is the sort of pro-cyclical nature of this uh sort of political economy of of housing and 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 finance um and so at the center of it is of course this uh, rising house prices and private land rent capture leading to increased speculative demand for residential property demand for housing as a financial asset leading to even more financial flows going into housing and more household debt uh, uh, leading uh, to, to even further rising rising house prices just to be clear most mortgage new mortgages no new mortgage credit is for the purchase of existing property not for 
building new homes if, it, if if a mortgage is for building a new home that's that's a different matter because you are creating a uh you are it's more of a productive investment you're you're going to be building stuff you're going to be you're going to have supply chains of small businesses supporting the building of a property and you can sort of absorb that credit into the economy without it being inflationary um, not the case if you'll just basically have different people competing to push up the price of land by uh, by getting the highest mortgage um, and uh, and I've already talked through the role of financial de deregulation and innovation um, and the role of um, residential mortgage-backed securities and real estate investment trusts. Key point there is the, the role of institutional investors. And then you couple that with this very tax-friendly property uh, uh, wealth regime and, uh, and government subsidies uh, aimed squarely at the demand for housing. Um, rather than the supply of housing and in a weakening non-market housing offer. And, and so you, you, you're going to get this rapid buildup in house prices with this type of, of system. Um, land values, like all other assets, are inversely related to the real interest uh, rate. And so if you have falling real interest rates, you're going to have uh, rising uh, land values because... Um, uh, uh, it, property investment just becomes relatively more attractive to investors as it's a very good substitute for government bonds and other safe assets. Um, and what you've seen since the global financial crisis is this sort of what I've what, what is known in the literature is housing financialization 2.0. Uh, so the first phase of financialization was this uh, deregulation of, of of the mortgage banking sector of, of regulated banks, deposit taking banks leading to this explosion in credit, which I've talked about. But the second phase post the GFC, when there was sort of macro prudential policy, um, uh, which somewhat restricted uh, lending by banks, is you saw institutional investors, pension funds and insurance companies uh, increasingly getting into uh, real estate investment, uh, often through intermediaries like real estate investment trusts and real estate funds and private equity and hedge funds, um, which typically would would act as an intermediary, taking money from the uh, institutional investors and then putting it into property. And of course, in the US, you've had firms like Blackstone playing a very important role in the build to rent sector for example and typically buying up uh property in poorer areas of the country or property that that where there was very low prices post-financial crisis and very little demand and essentially uh doing up these properties or building new properties and pushing up the rents uh and sort of gentrifying these areas and and you know essentially filling the rent gap as it were and making a lot of money out of it usually selling on the usually selling on the, the properties once they they'd done that uh, with huge capital gains um, and I'd really recommend Brett Christopher's work on this if any of you are interested in this phenomenon he's done some really nice uh, research in the US on on the role of Blackstone and these sorts of companies and of course the very low interest rates just work very well for the business model of these firms because what they do is they leverage their existing land uh, real estate stocks to get, get even to borrow very very cheaply to buy more or do up use the money to do up the existing stock and buy more land and thus continuing this um housing finance cycle that i've that i've talked about um 
and of course states have generally just supported this process uh, we've seen very generous tax breaks for real estate investors in cities in particular we've seen the privatization of public housing programs particularly in in europe in country in cities like dublin and berlin we've seen this uh you've seen the deregulation of rental markets uh to which is often a requirement of these types of companies that because they want to extract maximal rents they don't want sort of you know capping of rents um rent caps which uh is increasingly coming back in popularity actually in europe as rents as rents really soar uh, and you've typically seen rising housing benefits for the private rental sector as rents have gone up but incomes have stagnated um the state has had to step in and basically end up subsidizing these companies by paying uh, tenants more and more of their of their rent so that they can stay uh, afloat uh, <clears throat> and this uh this process of more and more investment flows going into sort of these so-called global cities you can see all around the world including in in u.s cities like san francisco and uh and Manhattan, uh, uh, and I'm sure it's happening in other places, probably like um, Florida, I expect, is, a, is another example of this, um, but also in, in many other uh, cities uh, in, across the world. And what's interesting is you see this synchronization of uh, real estate values in these cities. They sort of synchronize with each other away from the hinterland of these cities. So the smaller towns uh, and cities in the same country don't see anywhere near like this kind of takeoff in house prices. And that's because institutional investors, global institutional investors are zooming in on these cities uh, where land, uh, where real estate is seen as a very safe investment. It's essentially become a sort of new gold uh, for these for these investors in a in a regime which we've had up until you know two years ago, a very, very low interest rates. And this chart just shows you the value of corporate buy to buy to let or buy to rent investment in Europe. Um, these are all um, investments of more than five million euros. Um, euros about the same as the dollar, more or less, from 2007 to 2020. This uh, huge explosion in these massive, um, massive deals. Um, and this is where, where there were more than 10 apartments uh, acquired. Now, the, the powers that be, the G20, have encouraged this process of uh, securitization um, with multilateral development banks encouraged to get into this business. MDB should collaborate to enable system-wide securitization to mobilize institutional investors. Securitizing on a large scale will create new asset classes and attract a wider range of, of investors. So there's the, you know, the policymakers have, have viewed this huge explosion in institutional real investment as a universally good thing even though there's lots of evidence that it's just pushed up house prices well beyond what ordinary people can afford in cities especially um i won't go through this because this is a bit more relevant to the to the uk this is just uh this is just tax reliefs and beneficial uh, interventions in the property tax market in the UK, um, but the US, you've you've essentially seen a similar pattern. Most of it happened, I think, in the post-war period more. Um, but this chart just shows the decline in in property taxes. Um, that's the local percentage of local taxes in blue at the top. Percentage of own source 
general revenue in um, orange and total general revenue um, in gray. Of course, you had the emergence of income tax in the uh, in the Second World War, and that, uh, and you also had VAT, and there was a lot of taxes on on car uh, energy on um, petrol. So all of these started to become more important and, and property tax was just sort of allowed to just become a lower and lower proportion of, of tax revenue, which of course has contributed to these, these issues that we have today. So I'm gonna just, don't wanna take up too much more of your, your time. Just wanna be a bit more positive, you know, sort of say it doesn't have to be this way. There are places where things are, are different. And this chart just shows you, um, the Anglo-Saxon average of the house price to income ratio, which I showed you already, is is the red dotted line. But um, you can see there are countries where this hasn't happened. We haven't had this enormous explosion in house prices. And Germany and Korea are two uh, examples of that. More recently in Germany, you have seen rapid house price increases in cities, especially Berlin and Munich. But um, uh, for most of that period, you didn't see this. So the interesting question is, you know, why why was this, um, and you know, what reforms can we institute to get us out of this uh, get us out of this problem? And um, my work has been mainly focused on the role that central banks could take, um, and more broadly, what you might call financial policy. Uh, and I would argue central banks need to be much more focused on asset prices, not just consumer prices. It it really doesn't make sense to. Uh, have interest rates very, very low just because consumer price inflation is is so low when you've got house prices shooting through the roof. Um, and that's what they did. That's what they've done basically since 2008. And in the lead up to the, to the financial crisis as well, I would argue there should have been more attention to house prices. Um, quantitative easing, as I've said, has also contributed to the problem pushed down uh, interest rates on safe assets you're going to get a you're going to incentivize lending to real estate so you know credit guidance is another option credit guidance was used very widely in high income economies in the post-war period where you actually suppressed credit towards for household purchase and consum consumer credit and encouraged credit to flow into strategic sectors of the economy typically it was high value added manufacturing and export sectors in in the US and Europe in the post-war period today it would obviously be funding for green energy infrastructure and, and the green transition um, as Biden is is Joe Biden's doing to some extent with the uh, with the IRA Inflation Reduction Act but you could get the you know the, the central bank supporting that with these credit guidance type tools. Um, and this would go much further than the macroprudential policy and that we've seen, which I, d I don't think has gone has gone far enough. Um, but there are other options. You can also have state owned um, banks, which are focused on uh, directing finance to the right parts of the economy and don't require uh, small businesses to to put up their house as collateral every time they want to a loan that can sort of um, decouple the banking system from this uh, housing finance cycle. And a nice example of this is the uh, French Banque Centrale du Crédit Mobilier et Industriel, uh, which basically helped build railroads right across the European continent in the 19th century. Uh, and what's interesting about this is the name, uh, the Bank of Mobile Credit uh, and Industry, rather than uh, 
the the credit immobilier, which is is what we have today. It's immobile credit. Banks create money to buy immobile existing assets, uh, houses essentially, rather than um, uh, uh, industry and and, and mobile uh, assets like like trains. Um, the KFW is the German major German uh, state-owned bank, and this uh, has has played a huge role in supporting the German green transition. Uh, has invested in uh, solar panels on roofs. Has invested in uh, the green energy infrastructure in Germany, in a way that uh, uh, it, it's about twenty percent of GDP. The KFW is a massive um, state bank, uh, and of course they don't they don't give anyone loans to just buy existing uh, houses. <clears throat> The other option, of course, is a more Georgist approach of trying to capture land values, um, whether that's through um, taxes on on infrastructure investment, um, which I'm sure you, you will all be familiar with. This is the model that's uh, used in Hong Kong very successfully um, or, or taxation, um, which is uh, the other sort of most most hotly debated uh, topic. But of course, you can also just simply own that, make sure the land is owned by the by the government, by the public sector, and then you lease out uh, property for different uses, which is the sort of Singapore model. And in fact, there's a whole range of planning tools um, that can be used to sort of capture land value uh, increases. And this is um, some of those uh, in, a, in a recent OECD uh, report. So there's, there's lots of interest in these tools. I think the challenge is sort of the political, uh, the, the political will um, to sort of do it. Um, and this is your uh, your uh, uh, favourite man, I assume, a picture of him talking about land value tax here. Um, I think the way to do LVT today is um, you've got to make it tax neutral somehow. You've got to reduce income tax or corporation tax to get business on side. You've got to find ways of allowing delayed payment for, uh, for example, older people who are uh, income poor but asset rich or equity, some sort of equity release schemes. Um, and maybe you've got to talk about hypothecating the profits from LVT to, to uh, citizens income or some other popular type of scheme. The, you know, the great example of this is the Norwegian oil fund where the profits from, from this are distributed across the, uh, the nation. <clears throat> And I think I'll I'll leave it there because I've talked for uh, half an hour. Um, but but this is the Singaporean um, model where ninety percent of land is owned by the by the state, and South Korea has a has a similar sort of uh, very powerful land corporation. Um, and then there's community land trusts uh, as well on a smaller scale. Um, uh, and um, just to finish, I suppose in in Barcelona at the moment, there's some very interesting developments. Um, the uh, the the mayor of Barcelona, Eda Calau, is a uh, is is doing some fantastic things, um, playing a much more getting the local uh, the government to play a much more proactive role in both building affordable homes, but also buying. Um, uh, they have they've introduced a new law where the local government has the first right of refusal on any um, private rented accommodation where the owner is selling the the property um, they can the state can come in and buy the property and turn it into affordable housing so they're actually as well as building new homes they're purchasing uh, homes from the private rental market and turning them into um, affordable homes um, so it's a sort of 10-year 
tenure shift uh, strategy that's being undertaken there. And they're also building some really fantastic ecologically um, sound homes as, as well. So I'll just finish with a summary. Um, land and housing have unique economic properties, as we know. If you have a deregulated land market, it will tend towards monopoly, rent extraction, inequality. And if you couple that by with a deregulated financial sector, uh, you'll make it even worse because of this important relationship between finance and land. So the duty really is on policymakers to shape both of these markets um, and socialize these land rents to provide affo affordable housing um, and a range of land value capture tools are available. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.